You're listening to TalkZone.com, Internet Talk Radio. You are entering an intriguing journey with spiritual lifestyle experts Keith and Charmé Amber, where you'll end up more at home with yourself, your behavior, and your understanding of life. Mastering Ourselves offers sound answers to life's tough questions so that life can make more sense to you and healthy directions become clearer. Keith and Charmé bring you over 80 years of seasoned experience. They pursue truth and insights that are neither left nor right, but spiritually sound and centered and can be used as a spiritual compass to help you on your path. Welcome to Mastering Ourselves. Welcome indeed. We love to have this next guest on periodically, primarily because he has devoted his life to learning how to read Earth. That's quite a skill. You you know, uh, we've had him on, this will be our fourth time, I believe, and uh, two of the times we've had earthquakes right before he's been on. Yes, and thank God we didn't have one this time. Yeah, not last, bad, huh? Last one knocked our socks off. It Boy, was, it did. It was pretty brutal. Yeah. Really, it really humbles you. To, oh, it does. It does. You can't think you're the big guy on the block anymore no. after one of those. No. It'll sit you right in your seat. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, is a maverick geologist, and maverick because he he has learned how to read Earth, whereas many geologists still don't think you can do that. But it's amazing. He does these windows every month where he predicts uh, basically where earthquakes are likely to be and during what time periods and you know, actually, he has pretty amazing accuracy, and it's pretty interesting stuff. Which means his formula must be right. He's too accurate for there to be any other answer. I would think. So, very, very interesting to hear. Would you please welcome to our show, Maverick Geologist, James Berkland. Call me Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I was joking with Charmé. I said, we're going to get you on. I'm going to say, okay, James. <laughs> we know it's Jim. <laughs> okay. <laughs> How you been? Well, it can hardly be better. I'm just amazing to get through this winter with just one little cold, and uh, and we're having wonderful weather, and uh, we just had a great luncheon with some uh, old friends that I graduated from uh, high school with oh, in 1948. Oh, my goodness. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> So you had a little cold in the middle of this global warming thing, huh? Yes. Oh, that—that that is such a, a, a striving for power and money, and it's just greed that's fueling this whole thing. You mean you don't believe Al Gore? Oh boy, I saw the movie and I just sunk down in my seat. It, it, they, but people don't realize when he talks about carbon dioxide, um, the atmosphere that we're all breathing is about 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen. Well, that's 99%. That doesn't leave much for the argon and the krypton and the, and the sulfur dioxide. And actually, carbon dioxide constitutes about 0.03%. Now, they claim it's gone up to about 0.038 or so. But this is, this is a tiny percentage, and most of that is coming from volcanic action. Yep. So, uh, so it triples in the last 10 years, big deal. If right. you take off the percentage sign, that's point zero 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 three five uh, proportion. And, uh, you know, it's just next to nothing. 
Is, isn't it ridiculous? Oh, yes. And, and, and water vapor is a much greater uh, screener and, uh, and well, I can't call it a pollutant, but that's yeah. just like if they call CO2 a pollutant, you ought to call water a pollutant. Too. Right. So it's a, a water vapor is a bigger greenhouse gas, right? Yes, indeed, for sure. Right. It's a big one. So is there any, is any of Mr. Al Gore's uh, incredible movie based on fact at all? Well, you can see that the yes, indeed, glaciers are melting. Well, my wife and I, uh, on our honeymoon, she's from eastern Canada, and we took a trip all across the USA and back across Canada, and we stopped off at uh, Jasper and Banff yep. when we saw the Columbia Glacier, and it had uh, little pigs. Uh, oh, about 100, 200 feet apart. You could see where the glacier had been receding uh, every year. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was since about 1940. Um, and so no question the glaciers were receding then, but this is part of uh, the natural cycle of warming and cooling, and it takes hundreds of years to complete each cycle. And, and that's historical. We have warming and cooling going on for millions of years on the Earth, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. And remember uh, when, the, when the Vikings had their big exploits and settled in Iceland and Greenland and Vinland? That's right. It was greener then, wasn't it? Much warmer. Yeah. It, what, it wasn't really green uh, except along the edges, but it was that was the, uh, uh, the PR <laughs> that they were trying to get more people to come over. So right. They called it Greenland. But, I see. But it still had the big glaciers, you know, 10,000 feet high in the in the middle of the uh, of the island, right? But uh, it was uh, warmer between about 800 and 1200 A.D. when the Vikings were at their peak, and then it got colder and colder, and they had a little ice age from around 1400 to about 1850, and uh, the little ice age, and that was a time of the maunder minimum of uh, uh, sunstorms or sunspots. There right. were none. Yeah. And uh, and so we've actually we're at the minimum right now of of sunspots. It's been pretty clean, and we haven't had uh, super quakes in the last uh, couple of years. And uh, and we haven't had the X flares, which were very very abundant about four or five years ago. Um, but it's expected that we're going to reach the peak in 2012, which is another whole subject. Yes. The end of the Mayan calendar. Right. And I used to laugh and say, well, the the artisan just ran out of rock. But then there are more things. Knowing that the uh, sunspot should peak out then, um, there are several other factors that seem to be out there that make me um, a little more cautious than I was about the significance of 2012. Y- you know... Um the sun is huge, and it's yeah. hot, and yeah. we're, we're not that far from it. And it seems to me that by far the major factor of global warming would be however the sun is being that particular round. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, how can they ignore the little ice age at the time of the least action on the sun? Right. Yeah, that just makes sense. Now, I also notice, you know, your main subject is earthquake, but, you know, you're a geologist, you know about all this kind of stuff. But I noticed in the uh, Alaskan earthquake, there was major solar flares right before, I think it was right before that major Alaskan earthquake. Do you think the solar flares put pressure there? 
Well, there's sort of an unknown. It's probably <coughs> was a magnetohydrodynamics is what the physicists say. Okay. When the, when the sun has huge flares, yeah. uh, there's a lot of uh, protons that travel quickly across the intervening area and hit our ionosphere. Yeah. And they activate our northern and southern lights around yeah. the poles. Yeah. Cause tremendous uh, problems with our computers. Yeah. And uh, electrical system. So it's a, and you know, they have to be careful when they send astronauts up at such times. They need special shielding places to go if there's going to be a big solar storm and they have special little areas there that uh, shield them. I see. So, uh, not, I haven't noticed that connection about 1964, March 27th on Good Friday when we had the 9.2 in Alaska, but it was on the day of the full moon and it was preceded uh, by a huge uh, electronic glitch in the ionosphere. Yes. And they'd recently installed some instruments on the island of Kodiak, and they thought the instruments had just gone haywire. Right. They didn't believe them. Yep. And uh, within a few hours, they, they got that the second greatest quake in uh, near history. And um, the, the people that were in the Seward uh, told me that that afternoon, on Good Friday, there were rats and mice running around the streets of of Seward in broad daylight. And all of the seagulls had disappeared from the waterfront. And they'd never seen that happen before. Jeez. Hold on one second. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions. Don't forget to catch us Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, maverick geologist and earthquake predictor. So I have written here, I think it's out of some of the material you wrote some time ago, but there was a solar flare right before that. It impressed on the ionosphere that you're saying, and there was a record 100 gamma magnetic right. anomaly. That's right. Normally it was 5 or 10 gamma changes during the day, and they just it was unprecedented to see a 100 gamma change. So, um, But they disregarded it because it was just too extreme. I, That's what I hope my seismic windows help people do. They recognize the time uh, of increased probability for quakes. And so whatever they're looking at, their animals or their instruments, uh, they should pay closer attention and not just discard some important fact. Yeah, no fooling. If the animals are acting weird, it's happening for a reason, isn't it? Yes. Now, uh, I don't know. You probably didn't see my last newsletter, which I just mailed out. But... Uh, I, I, I have a little two-paragraph story here that was just incredible. It just happened uh, last month. I had written um, the title of Seismic Sentries for Pet of the Month, yes. but I didn't have any ideas. So I went on to the next couple of sections, talked about the maximum Los Angeles quakes recently and how the missing pets ads in the L.A. Times matched those times. Mm-hmm. Well, so I had this, uh, this, this uh, title on Seismic Sentries, and it was blank, and I took my dog down to the post office much later than I usually did. They usually go down around noontime, but this is close to 4 o'clock. Yeah. And as I passed the local bar, there was a fellow sitting on a bench outside, and I engaged him in a little light conversation. And all of a sudden, I heard behind me, Jim! And I looked around, and here were a couple of people, about half my age. Well, let me read what I have here. Mm-hmm. While writing this issue 220 of Syzygy, I had typed this section head, and then without an idea, I left the description blank and went ahead with the next two pages of this April issue. Then came a series of meaningful coincidences. 
On this day, I had not walked my border collie, Coyote Dog Mintu, to the post office until unusually late in the afternoon. As we passed the cafe, I heard a voice behind me, Jim, and I turned to find a couple of half my age. The gal was an astronomer and a fellow docent at the local Bouverie Nature Preserve. The guy had recently taken my night class in geology at Sonoma High School and knew that I often had a handle on earthquakes. When's the next quake, he asked, and I mentioned that my seismic window had just opened and we had already experienced several events of 3 to 3.7 in California, Nevada. I gave them a copy of my March Syzygy, which I just happened to have in my back pocket, as usual. <laughs> and she, Laurie O'Hare, told me she had an interesting Irish human interest story about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. I was all ears and kidded her that every year at this time, as we approached March 17th, I often announced myself as Jim O'Berkland, because O was my middle initial. Oh. And uh, Laurie said that her grandmother, Kathleen Maloney, was born a couple of months before the great earthquake of April 18, 1906, and she was one of a family of 10 children living on 18th Avenue in San Francisco. Her parents had obtained a puppy that would be hers so that the two could grow up together. They had named the puppy Chippy. The family was deep in sleep on April 18, 1906, until just before 5 a.m. when Chippy began to bark furiously. Baby Kathleen woke up and soon the whole family was aroused. The baby was brought into the kitchen for feeding, and at 5.13, the infamous great quake struck, collapsing a brick wall that covered the crib. Luckily, the baby, dog, and all were elsewhere. As Lori tells it, now whenever her family gets together, they are ever aware that had it not been for Chippy's timely warning, none of them would be here. Oh. Naturally, they have no doubt about the usefulness of seismic sentry, especially one named Chippy. When I queried Lori as to what the breed was, she hesitated and seems to be racking her brain. Suddenly, out of the blue, I suggested a schnauzer. She looked startled and asked, how did you know that? I tapped my head and told her that her guess was as good as mine. I'm not sure that I even know what a schnauzer looks like. Okay, i got to take a break. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, helping humanity wake up. One show at a time, our guest today, Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist and Earthquake Predictor. We'll be back with more. Hey, welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber. And our guest today, Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist and Earthquake Predictor. Thank you very much for being with us today. So their schnauzer warned them that an earthquake was coming? Right. And... Uh... Had the baby not had the baby not moved from the crib, she would have been crushed underneath the falling bricks. Yeah. And and the granddaughter that was speaking to me wouldn't have been around. Wow. Yeah, it's just you know one of those amazing uh, coincidences. Yeah. And uh, but some people you know deny that it's any use that animals if even if you knew that they, they were could predict some quakes that it was useless. Well, not for that family. <laughs> well, those people that don't believe that about animals are missing a whole segment of nature. They're just out of touch with a whole segment of nature, and I certainly wouldn't entrust my life to them. We call those honorary scientists. <laughs> <laughs> we call them asleep. Yeah, they have uh, many times the blinders on. Now, if you are a yes. geophysicist or a mathematician, you know, your life is so full of specific statistics and formulas 
that you you don't have much room for extraneous materials. And I was born right here in, in Glen. Well, I was raised here in Glendale and in the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were quite aware of uh, nature, and uh, it's all around us. Right. right. And uh, so I had a great appreciation for it, and it's one of the reasons I got into the field of geology because I didn't have to spend most of my time behind four walls. No fooling. Uh-huh. Have a little life in your life. Yeah. So in your work, have you ever had any dreams or premonitions that an earthquake was coming? Yes. Uh, back in the early 80s, I had three very clear dreams of quakes that followed shortly. Wow. And somehow, after those three, I haven't had any. I've dreamed a few times of quakes. Oh, that really shook me furiously. Um, but... Um, but they were very non-specific. Yeah. But I can t- well one was, it was so clear it was deja vu. Uh, in in San Jose, they have the Winchester House where Sarah Winchester, who was the wife of the Winchester rifle creator. Yes. She heard that if she kept building on this house, she would never die. Well, she got to the, into her mid nineties, so it almost worked for her. Uh, in fact, she was caught up in one of the new rooms, and they weren't sure which one when the 1906 quake hit, oh. and a bunch of the doors were locked, and they couldn't get through, and <laughs> she was in there for over a day before they finally uh, tracked her down. Wow. But um, I was in, in this dream, it seemed like, more than an hour, just dreaming of wandering around this dark, uh, multi-story building, and there'd mm-hmm. be stairways leading to the ceiling and not going anywhere, or a door you'd open up, and there'd be another <laughs> door. And it was just dark, and it wasn't frightening, but it was just really frustrating. And suddenly the shaft of light came in, an outside door opened, and in came a, oh, a medium-sized man. First thing he said was, did you hear about the big earthquake back east? And I said in my dream, no, how big was it? He said, a 5.8. I said, oh, that's a big one for back east. Uh, where was it, in the Boston area? And I heard, and I just couldn't understand it, but it was so clear, it woke me right up. Wow. Exactly two weeks later, we had an eclipse of the moon, and this is 1980 in, uh, I guess it was July. Mm-hmm. And we had a, do you know about Stanton T. Friedman, a nuclear physicist who's a UFO expert? We sure yeah, do. he was on our show last oh, week. Oh, terrific. Yeah. Okay. Well, his wife... Uh, is my wife's best friend, and we see each other all the time. <laughs> and they were, at that time, living in the Bay Area before they moved back to uh, Canada. Yeah. And uh, they'd come over for, we were having a barbecue that day, and he had his hands full of big uh, uh, potato salad. And he came in and said, did you hear about the big earthquake back east? And I heard myself say, no, how big was it? And he said, five and a half to six. And and I said, my gosh, I just had that yep. dream. Uh, I heard those same words two weeks ago. Well, it turned out to be not a 5.8, but the first call was a 5.5, and mm-hmm. they finally lowered it to 5.2. It was the strongest earthquake ever centered in Kentucky, and it caused damage in Cincinnati, was felt by the baseball players in Chicago, uh-huh. and the Oakland Athletics knew what it was, but the Chicago players seemed to be uh, <laughs> unaware of what was going on. Yeah. And my geologist professor friend, whom I 
went to teach with back in North Carolina at Appalachian State University. Yeah. I called him to warn him about a quake that might be upcoming in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And he felt that quake in the town of Boone, yep. North Carolina. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So break that was, anyways, that was really, how does that happen? How, can that you, does, how does that happen? Yeah. The guides at work. Hang on. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Maverick Geologist. Jim Berkland, earthquake predictor with lots of interesting stuff. Hang on. Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, maverick geologist and earthquake predictor. So, Jim, you talk about uh, how does this happen where you can foreknow or predict earthquakes and uh, other psychic things, actually. And for you, it's obviously that you have a psychic bent, but I believe it's limited on purpose because I think your main gift is to give the rational mind of mankind a solid formula to predict earthquakes because that's a very valuable thing. So you're a forebearer of that, and if you're psychic, well, then we're waiting for the next psychic. But if you scientifically bring... Uh, a formula that seems to work and you have a lot of uh, good accurate guesses of earthquakes coming then that gives the rational scientific world something to stand on when they're ready to stand on it so we can protect ourselves when harm comes our way I think you're right now I went to Egypt in 1993 94 5, 95 and um, we toured the Nile and the Last night we went into the Great Pyramid in the afternoon and uh, totally dark inside. They turned off all the lights and uh, there were some, oh, I happened to have uh, some chimes from Tibet in there and they rang through there. And uh, Did that sound neat? Oh, boy, it was really resounding because <laughs> you could hear them. You bang them and they resound for about 30 seconds. Just oh, my. Beautiful chimes. Hard, hard walls will do that. No, uh, yeah. no, no acoustics. Yes, indeed. Well, I had some interesting uh, ideas in there, which uh, I've been selected to give the talk for the Egyptologists and the, his assistants at the dinner that night that followed our time in the King's Chamber. Yeah. And uh, while in there, I total darkness. I wave my fingers in front of my eyes, like I, you can do. I can do here now in the light of my office. And I can see with my spread fingers, I can see light and dark and light and dark, and I can see if I'm making my hand go up and down or sideways. Yes. I could see that in this king's chamber, so there has to be some kind of electromagnetic energy in there, some yes. kind of energy in the king's chamber in the middle of the, uh, the Great Pyramid. No doubt. Well, the mathematician for Napoleon followed him with about a hundred savants that Napoleon brought with them to find out the secret of the ages and the... And then Egypt, it wasn't just to go and conquer the country, but also to learn. Learn the, learn the mysteries. Yes, and so while this young mathematician, like I think he was 19 years old, he was in there, it suddenly occurred to him how he could resolve some very difficult uh, mathematical formulas into the form of graphics and uh, tables. They're not tables, but uh, in the graphical form. So he figured out he figured something out that he's probably been working on for some time. It just stood it's still used today in the 
space age. <laughs> these, these there's curves. There's uh, taking these, these formulas and converting them to visual curves. Yeah. So um, sounds like parabolas or something. Well, they're shaped something like that. Yes. Yep. Um, and that, his name escapes me right now, but maybe it'll come to me. But anyway, when Napoleon talked to him, he decided that he would be there by himself for 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And when he came out, the people that were with him said, what happened? And he said, I don't want to talk about it. And when, when he was uh, on the island of St. Helena in his exile. Yep. And where he died. Mm-hmm. One of his old colleagues came in and said, well, will you tell us now what happened? And what he said was, now it doesn't make any difference. So we're left to wonder just what yeah. happened. So tomorrow, so, anyway. so tomorrow you're climbing Mount Helena? Yeah, Mount St. Helena. <laughs> yeah. Little coincidence here. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, I'd forgotten about it. That's very interesting. So while I was in there, I said, okay, I've got to think some great thoughts. Let's see. Uh, how about... Uh, 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 truth and I heard a voice over my right shoulder saying truth is not the same as fact and I thought that's interesting you sort of figure they're equivalent but somebody can tell you an absolute lie <laughs> it can be a fact he said it but it's a lie it's okay. not truth yeah. so um, okay what about uh, uh, immortality and instantly I hear immortality is where you find it well, I can't deny that. Then I found out there was a sense of humor wherever, there, wherever this was coming from because I said, time. And I hear, time waits for no man. I think, you know, I've heard this before. <laughs> Maybe for a foxy lady. <laughs> <laughs> Talking your language, huh, Jim? <laughs> yeah, that was just, that wasn't me. That was this voice. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's truth. So I got to the the opening, and I could see the, the bus off in the distance, and most of the people had already gone out. And I came out into the bright light, and just as I came out, it suddenly occurred to me why we're here. Why all of us are here. Just like a light going on, huh? Yes, yes. To seek our purpose and strive to achieve it, anything less is a waste of existence. And that's before the book, The Purpose Driven Life, came out. Yeah. Yep. And so it was so satisfying because I realized I'd found my purpose and I'm doing it right now. Yep. And and I totally agree with you. We're, we're supposed to find our purpose how we're designed, how we're supposed to fit and do a valuable contribution, and then do it. And it applies not only to an individual, but a family, a community, uh, a nation, and a, the whole yes. civilization around us. Right. Yes. And talk about bankrupt. You know, you're, oh. you're bankrupt if you don't have that. Yes. Or if you, if you just go blindly through life day to day without any trying to find out why we're here. What poverty that is. Yes. Yeah. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, Maverick, geologist and earthquake predictor. So, Jim, it seems like there's a pressure building before a quake breaks. Okay. And, and uh, like some people have their ears, they hear the ringing 
or some people get sick, headaches, animals go bazonkers, uh, uh, dolphins and different uh, whales, whales and beach, etc., yeah. etc. Et Do you think it's because they're associating to either a magnetic disturbance or the pressure That's building? That's mainly the magnetic uh, disturbances. We know that animals navigate by means of the magnetic field, yeah. and just like a compass needle. And, for example, I used to raise homing pigeons right here on this property in Glen Ellen. And yeah. one time I took a pair of them in a knapsack up uh, about a five-mile hike to the top of the mountain. And there was a place called the Secret Pastures, and I released them. I told my sister, I'm going to let them go at 2 o'clock, see what time they get back. Mm -hmm. Well, about a minute and a half they were here. But first, instead of flying, flying directly home, and I could see my house off in the distance, they would circle. I thought, dumb birds, can't they see the house like I can? And I thought, well, I guess they're looking for a landmark. <laughs> it was 30 years later when I heard that they had discovered in the, hum in the pigeon brain behind the eyeballs the little mineral magnetite, iron oxide, which is the most highly magnetic natural substance on Earth. So when you move a magnetic material around the magnetic field that circles the Earth, you have created a generator. They have a mini generator in their skull, huh. and they can interpret the electronic signals. It makes a you know a little uh, amperage, and uh, just like a, the generator in a car, the generator in a car has the magnetic field with magnetic material moving around in it. I, I get a sense that there's some kind of gyroscopic kind of thing going on there. Well, that would require uh, maybe something like that, but that, this is not a physical motion like a gyroscope. Yeah. This is actually electric current. You know when you're and, and, and they can they know when they're facing north and they know what it's like to fly home from their previous flying around their home yes. base. When you're saying this, I'm seeing these little gyroscope things that you pull the string on and they just sure. Yeah, I'm seeing it when you're saying this. So there's some tie-in with that. Well, they do have gyroscopic compasses. Uh, when they go through highly magnetic areas, yeah, uh, that's in ships. Uh, but uh, it, it's uh, you don't need to have the balance, like our inner, inner ear balance. Right. Um, it helps, <laughs> but uh, uh, but I've heard some people do get uh, nauseous from uh, that kind of thing. Yes. Uh, and uh, before quakes, so maybe there's something to that. Um, but since that time, they've discovered these bacteria in honeybees. And they found out they don't grow it in their abdomens until they grow wings because they have no need to navigate. Oh, well, and, look at that. Yeah, and then the dura around dolphins. Yeah. Little grains of magnetite, and the largest grains are enclosed with a network of nerve endings. So it's not just accidentally incorporated there. Yeah. That's how they navigate. So It's giving them what, signals. Yeah. So when a big quake is about to happen, at, at least locally, the magnetic field is highly disturbed. And if the whales and dolphins are swimming north and south along the lines of magnetic flux, those lines can get disturbed and warped and lead right up onto a beach. And they swim up onto the beach, figuring they were swimming in the right direction. Who put the sand right. in the way? Boy, they're, they're really owned by that magnetic force, aren't they? Yes, indeed. So this explains the beachings. Many times. Now, remember when the big tsunami hit uh, off Sumatra in the Indian Ocean? Yep, yep. Okay, um... Two weeks prior to that was the greatest beaching in the history of uh, New Zealand, Australia, and uh, and the island of uh, just south of Australia, uh, Ta Ta Tasmania. 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 Yeah. 
And there were dolphins and whales of all kinds that had beached themselves in large numbers, several hundred. And that's a long way from where the... uh... Well, but just south of New Zealand, an 8.3 hit a few days after the beachings. And then three days later is when the 9.2 hit up there in the Indian Ocean. So one or both of those caused this huge uh, beaching, I think. Right. Now, before the World Series quake in 1989... About three weeks before, there were two very rare baby beaked whales washed up at San Francisco Beach. It hasn't happened before or since because they were alive. They had never found the live ones before. They could study them. They brought them to Marine World. And while they were taking care of those at Marine World, an equally rare pygmy sperm whale washed up at Santa Cruz less than five miles from the epicenter of the earthquake that was just about to come. And they took that whale down to... Uh, the marine uh, aquarium at right. Monterey. Right. So um, when it, <laughs> these are unusual events and the largest quake since 1906 in the Bay Area, how can one not see that there's a probable correlation? Sure exactly. there is. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts, helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, maverick geologist and earthquake predictor. And if you'd like to go to his website, he's at www.sy. Z-Y-G-Y-J-O-B dot com, where he also has uh, newsletters that you can get to come to your home for the year, and they're very, very interesting monthly newsletter. Again, the website is S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y-J-O-B dot com. Syzygyjob.com. So is there a lot of quartz in the earth uh, uh, mantle, and is that part of what uh, creates the magnetic force? No, it's not quartz. It's magnetite, mainly. In the, but, uh, there's other, a few other minerals like chromite and uh, some kind of different. They're all called spinels. They're certain kind of crystals, but the magnetite is by far and away the greatest one. So and it's found in all kinds of rocks. And uh, quartz is very rare out in the oceans. Hawaii has uh, about the only quartz you'll find in Hawaii is blown over from the sands from the desert a thousand miles away or several thousand miles away. Wow. So um, you have primitive rock there with almost no quartz in it. And right, the continents, yeah. Uh, are recirculated rocks that have uh, turned into mountains and worn down and turned into sand. And that gradually the quartz gets uh, concentrated. Because it's very in- inactive, it's very strong. It doesn't react with other chemicals yeah. and minerals, and uh, and so it's also it doesn't have a strong cleavage, and so it doesn't break easily. Although it chips and you know it breaks like glass, yeah, on coital fracture. But uh, but uh, quartz does when it's pressed, it causes radio signals, and so that's another part of the the story about earthquakes, because you get these electronic signals, which apparently what causes the um, uh, the animals to react also. I see. And, and does that create like a light too, like on, like on sometimes oh, on yes. top of the mountain or something? Yes, earthquake lights and those uh, mainstream scientists just laughed at that for many years until the Japanese got the television pictures of it in uh, I think <laughs> Matsushita in the 1960s. Yeah, and I had uh, before a. Uh, 5.9 quake uh, south of San Jose. I had a woman tell me that these strange lights were down to the south just before that quake. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when you get this independent confirmation, yeah. it adds, you know, 
a lot of credibility. So that wouldn't happen like on Hawaii because we don't have much courts here, right? Yeah, it wouldn't be there wouldn't be that effect. Uh, piezo electric. Yeah, piezo. Uh, and also it's triboluminescent. When you rub two quartz crystals together, they glow at night. It's very interesting. It's like a luminosity. Wow. Triboluminescent. Yeah. And that wasn't known uh, for many, many years. Quartz is the most common mineral in the world, even though there's not much around the islands and the ocean basins. Um, and this old geologist in many years in Nevada told me about this in the 1970s that he was walking down some quartzite hills after dark, and he was noticing the rocks glowing underneath his foot. He said they weren't sparks. They were just glowing. So when he got back, uh, he got quartz crystals and rubbed them together, and sure enough, they glowed. (laughs) So he was telling a mineralogist back east at an important meeting about this, and he was extremely skeptical because, you know, uh, triboluminescence is very rare and unusual crystals. So... He said, sure, here's a couple of crystals. They went into the dark room, and the mineralogist said, well, I'll be damned. And so then it started showing up in the textbooks. Yeah, there you got it. Yeah. The proof. Okay. Now, okay. Oh, we got to take a break. You're listening okay. to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Thank you very much for joining us. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, maverick geologist and earthquake predictor. By the way, he's going to be with us for the second hour as well, so we're going to keep getting more cool stuff. Hang on. Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber and our guest today, Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist and Earthquake Predictor. And again, for those of you who have just joined us, uh, Jim will be joining us next hour as well. And his website, if you'd like to go check it out further, is uh, syzygy.com, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. J-O-B dot com. Uh, Jim, what does syzygy mean? It means uh, yoked together like a team of oxen. And you can find it in uh, the Bible in uh, Philippians uh, near the end where it talks about yoke fellow or syzygous from the Greek. And, uh, when you know, the uh, you're pulling together on a common cause. Okay, yeah. And so I've identified it on my masthead as uh, linked together by a common need and interest. So does that relate to perhaps an eclipse for uh, causing earthquakes? Oh, very good. Yes, indeed. A perfect syzygy is an eclipse, as the sun, moon, and earth are lined up. Now, I had that on my little, uh, when I had the sob, and when I first started this, I got that a license plate with syzygy, and I went to the... Uh, the bureau of the you know state license plate. Yeah, and uh, the woman looked at me very intensely and says, "What does that mean?" Thought it was some kind of a foreign nasty word or something, you know. Did she put her hands on her hips? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. She was looking over the counter, and, and I said, "Well, it means lining up the sun, moon, and earth for one thing." And she says, "Well, you better see if somebody else has it." I said, oh, are you kidding? <laughs> Real likely, huh? And I went to the big book, and there were like 15 people had some writing. Oh, my. One Syzygy, Syzygy A, B. And so I ended up with Syzygy Q for Syzygy Quake. Yeah. 
and on their license plate. And I had that for about three weeks, and I was driving through Palo Alto, and a red light shone behind me, and a cop pulled me over. Said, "Sir, you didn't do anything wrong. I just had to know what that meant." <laughs> <laughs> so here's your ticket to the ball game. <laughs> so synergy is like synergy. Almost. A lot of people get them confused. In fact, uh, a synergy is a syner- has a synergistic effect for earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, in um, a perfect synergy is an eclipse. We had an eclipse on the very day of the San Fernando quake in 1971. Mm-hmm. And the 1933 Long Beach quake, which my family moved us away from about a month before it happened. Oh, lucky you! Old. Yeah, and uh, a, a new way to rock your baby. Yes, yes. Now, now in my in my uh, March, my April issue of Syzygy, here is a letter to the editor that I got. Dear Mr. Berkland, very recently, by browsing the web, I saw your book and became interested to read about you. Today I received an email from a friend. It was an alert about an earthquake, which is going to happen on the 17th of March in Tehran, the capital city of Iran. I would like to know your professional idea about that. Thanks, Riza. And I wrote, Riza, my seismic windows for March 7th to 14th, and I have no special feeling for the 17th, as the full moon is on March 20th. I've always pointed out to September 16th, 1978, when there was a total eclipse of the moon at the zenith over Iran, while a 7.8 quake struck near Tabas. At least 45,000 people died in the worst quake in Iranian history. Riza Pahlavi was still Shah, and the USA rushed in aid. So this fellow wrote me his name, Riza. Interesting. There was no suitable airport in the area, so the USA quickly constructed an airstrip in the desert so that our biggest cargo planes could land not too far from Tabas. Jim, to, we're, Jim, we're out of time here. Well, the, that was the same airstrip where our, our rescuers of the uh, the uh, ambassador's place. Uh, Jim, we're going to have to pick this up next hour. Hang on. Okay, you guys, thanks for joining us. Please join us next hour when we have Jim Berkland again. His website is syzygyjob.com. Now, come on. You can do it. Stretch into the greatness in you. And join us next hour for more of this fascinating information. Hang on. Boy, I tell you, we had an enlightening last hour. Wasn't that fun? Yeah, this is so interesting. And it's very interesting when you're around a guy of senior years, which Jim Berkland is, and who has paid attention for all of his years to the natural rhythms of Earth with an open mind and out of the box. They say when you get older, it's supposed to go with wisdom. You're supposed to get wiser. Yeah. Jim's doing it. And yeah. I, and it's lovely to hear him. It's it like is. a picnic. Yeah, it's great. Picnic of information. So, so we're going to do another hour of cool information. Our guest today uh, is Jim Berkland. He's a maverick geologist and earthquake predictor. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hi, thank you. I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> I feel the same way. Folks, we want to warn you, fasten your seatbelts. <laughs> I could finish that story that yes. I started. Let's yeah, we'd like that. it to. This is Iran earthquake where 45,000 died. Yes. What, September what, 16th, 1978. 1978. And the quake hit under an the, the total eclipse of the moon. And so it was a perfect syzygy. Yeah. Now, we constructed this airstrip so our big planes could land there and fly and help because we were still friends with Iran and helping the Shah at the time. Yeah. 
Now, two years later, everything had changed. Where our uh, embassy staff had been held hostage, and uh, it looked like we were not able to do anything about it, but we had a secret plan, Operation Eagle Claw, mm -hmm. which had been approved by President Carter. Yep. Two years after the eclipse, that abandoned airstrip was where President Carter agreed that our rescue helicopters would converge as part of our secret Eagle Claw mission to rescue the embassy hostages, hmm. where they eventually were held in Tehran for 444 days. Right. And then, uh, what is it, Reagan got them freed? Well, yes. Uh, just and this, I'll finish the story. I'm sorry. That, that the helicopters collided, oh. and we lost eight Marines in a sandstorm, and the whole thing was called off. Yikes. It took the threat of the newly elected President Reagan to get action. And minutes before he took office on January 20th, 1981, the hostages were freed. Had it not been for the eclipse, the quake, the airstrip, and the sandstorm, perhaps it would have been President Carter who was cheered into a second term. Yeah. Not saying that would have been good. As far as I know, I'm the only one who has connected all of these dots. Wow. There, but for a horseshoe nail. Isn't that something? Isn't that, you know, it would be someone like you that would connect the dots of, you know, by, you know, knowing common sense, your nose to the ground as a geologist, and not boxed in by certain rules that everyone else goes by, but looking with, you know, good intelligence to pull in some of the solutions on how to predict earthquakes. Yes. Now, when I first got this idea back in January 8, 1974, I thought I was the only one who ever connected gravitational stress with earthquakes. Yeah. And I saw in the newspaper that we were going to have extremely high tides due to an unusual astronomical alignment. And I thought, what's this? And I looked in the almanac, and sure enough, we had the closest approach of the moon in several years, only six minutes away from, oh, no, that was an hour and a half away from the, close, the, the, uh, the first full moon. The two major tide-raising forces are the lining of the sun, moon, and earth, the syzygy. Right. And second is perigee, the closest monthly approach of the moon. The third effect is perihelion, when the earth and sun are closest, and that's always in early January. So if you could have an eclipse where the moon's the closest and the sun's in closest on their um, orbits, you got a major force to cause an earthquake of anything. Real synergy there. Yeah. In fact, it's the closest that ever happened in the last uh, in the 600 years between 1600 and 2200 A.D. That did occur on January 12th of 19... No, January 4th of 1912. Again, it was January because it was on the day of perihelion. Right. On, and the day of... Uh, Syzygy and perigee being only six minutes apart. Ooh. So the minute I saw that in a huge book by Fergus Wood called The Strategic Role of Perigean Spring Tides, and he was a master scientist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, I was so lucky to come upon that book early because he had the formulas and the tables and everything that I had been trying to create by myself, and they were already done for me. Well, in this 600-year list of the maximum tidal forces, he pointed out that that January 4, 1912, was the top date. As soon as I saw that, well, guess what? I went to the earthquake record books, and I found that the strongest quake in 1912, 1913, 
in New York in uh, in Nevada, California. So the strongest quake in two years in two states was on that very day, January 4, 1912. Wow. It was a 5.5 up near Mammoth Lakes, fell down in Fresno. Yeah. It wasn't a disastrous quake, but it was the strongest in two years in two states, and it was on the very day of the maximum tidal force in 600 years. So I went to my friends at the USGS and said, look at this. And what did they say, Jim? Haven't you heard of coincidence? <laughs> I said, and I've heard of corroborative evidence, too. This yeah. is not proof, but it's certainly evidence that should be looked at. So that's strain on the Earth. Yeah, absolutely. The whole Earth is warped. It yep. goes up and down under a full moon about three feet. And I saw evidence of it when I worked for six years with the Bureau of Reclamation. One of my jobs was to work along the upcoming California aqueduct bringing water from Northern California to Southern California. Yeah, I remember that. And we were, the ranchers were very concerned that we were going to flood them out or dry them out because of changing water conditions. Mm -hmm. So we drilled a series of deep wells, observation wells, and on some of them we had floats that floated on the water surface and recorded up in a strip chart, a paper strip chart that we replaced every week. Yes. Well, in replacing this chart, it was easy to see that twice a day, the water level in the well went up and down a fraction of an inch, <laughs> about an eighth of an inch to a quarter of an inch. Not much, but it shows there was a tide in the groundwater. Oh, does it correlate with the ocean? Yes. Sure it would. Sure. It's the moon, huh? Yes, the moon is totally important. Is the moon the strongest force? With... By far. Hey, you're making all these good questions. <laughs> you're right on it. The moon has more than twice the effect that the sun has on our tides, even though the moon is so much smaller. But it's, it's closer. It's, what people don't really recognize is that the tide-raising force varies with the cube of the distance of the masses. And so right. it's not just the distance or the square of the distance, but the cube of the distance. So the moon's effect on our tides is more than twice as great as that of the sun. Right. So, uh, but, so if you can line them both up and add them together, that's right. when the maximum tides occur. Now, at the Golden Gate, we normally have on a typical day, like today, a tide range of about four to four and a half feet. Hold on one second, Jim. Uh -huh. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Jim Berkland, Maverick geologist and pre-earthquake predictor. Go ahead, talking about San Francisco. Okay. So... At, uh, very rarely, about once every 10 years, we get a tide reaching the maximum of 9.2 feet at the Golden Gate, twice normal. We're having a 9-foot tide in June, and this December we're having a 9.1-foot tide. We had a 9.2-foot tide uh, in 2003, and I'd warned all year about that December window, and at that December window is when we had this deadly quake down by uh, San Simeon in Southern California. Yeah. And a wall closed in on a, some people, a couple of gals working in this office in, uh, I guess it was uh, not San Juan Batista, but uh, Paso Robles. Yeah, Paso Robles. And uh, they died. Ooh. And uh, then a, a huge hot spring developed out in the, in the town, and the water was flowing down, was full of sulfurous water. Huh. But uh, that occurred. 
uh, at the time that the maximum tides were on the 22nd of December and the quake was on the 21st, and my window was from the 21st to the 28th. And then on the 26th, the day after um, Christmas, the Bam Iran quake hit and killed about 30,000 people in Iran. Again, and the, the tide-related quake in Iran. So in Iran, you know, this sort of doesn't make sense. They're wanting to make um, nuclear energy facilities on such an incredibly prone um, uh, earthquake place. Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. They, they, they think that that's their, their role to create Armageddon, and they don't care how they get there. Well, you know, I think it's for nuclear weapons, not for nuclear energy. Yeah, I think absolutely. they just, just well. That's it. That's Armageddon. I mean, that's you got it. Care. You got oh, it. Yeah. So you know, I'm curious if you have a full moon, but it's the furthest um, distance from the Earth, and then uh -huh. you what is it? The perigee. Apogee. Then that's apogee. Okay, and then you have a new moon, but it's at the perigee. Yeah, perigee. Yeah. Perigee. Which would be the strongest pole on the Earth? Well, it has to be syzygy, which is either the new or full moon, and perigee. At apogee, it's the least stressed. But an interesting thing is that when the astronauts left seismographs on the moon's surface, and for uh, several years we monitored the seismographs, we found that indeed there are moonquakes, <laughs> and most of them are clustered on the day of perigee. But surprisingly, there is a secondary little flurry when the moon is farthest from the Earth at apogee, which shows it's not just the pure physical force that can trigger quakes, but it's the change, the inflection point. In it suddenly goes from you know from the lowest right. force to increasing and going from the maximum force to decreasing. So it's the greatest pressure and the least pressure. Yes. Yeah. That's well, right. That makes sense. Yep. Um, that's pretty interesting. Uh huh. Well, the big quake in Seattle. Uh, the Nisqually quake occurred at the time of the new moon and uh, apogee. So it was not during my predicted window, which was two weeks earlier with the full moon perigee. Yeah. But my assistant, my webmaster at that time, Will Fletcher, had been picking up the window that I hadn't been predicting for. Yes. And he predicted a quake uh, in the northwest of more than five magnitude. And when the 6.7 hit... Yes. He was devastated, and he said, this isn't fun. He said, I'm never going to predict a quake again. Boy, no. So that's like a, uh, well, he, he's not a scientist, but he really took it personally, and that's something I've tried to avoid. I say, I'm trying to say, if the quake's going to happen, they're most likely going to happen during these earthquake-prone periods. So he felt extra responsible. Yes, mm. yes. Yeah. And it's like, a, well, a meteorologist, Noticing, uh, you know, tornado conditions. Yeah. Extreme vertical shears because of uh, maybe warm air uh, uh, beneath cold air. Right. Which is not what you would expect. What do you expect? What do you think these tornadoes are happening right now for out of control? We got about thirty seconds before break. Well, we just have extremely weird weather. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, a lot of global cooling this year. This boy, California, has one of the coolest uh, winters and springs that we've had. Yeah. 
Okay, break time. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Today we are talking with Jim Berkland, maverick geologist and earthquake predictor. If you'd like to check out his website, it's www.sygy, nope, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, com. We're going to come back and talk more. Stay with us. Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber and our guest today, Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist and Earthquake Predictor. So, Jim, you're always uh, making uh, predictions and, and figuring out the windows and all that kind of thing. How do you do it? Well, I look for the tidal calendar, which I've been using for about 15 years now, and I send for... Uh, they're beautiful little calendars with seashore scenes and boats and and uh, surf, and uh, they show a little blue line going up and down for every date. Yeah. And down below, it lists the highs and low tides for the day, and you can get them for any part of the country, and I normally get them for the Puget Sound, the Bay Area, and uh, Los Angeles area. Where do you get them? Um, well, let's see. called Tide Lines. And uh, you can, they, if you order several, you get the, uh, you order two, you get a third one free. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, we get those in the phone book. Yeah, in the front of our phone book, they have them. For our area. For our area, well, yeah. Well, I, I could give you the 800 number if you wanted to. Okay, uh, go ahead. 1-800-345-8524. Yep. Okay. 1-800-345-8524, and they take credit cards. Uh, of course. It takes a little over a week to arrive, and so here I see. I got uh, 2007, but I had 2008 in front of me. It shows, you know, new and full moon, and it doesn't show perigee, and I have encouraged them to show that. But uh, they have the quarter and full moon. So in this, clearly, if you see the blue line going from nearly the top of the date to the bottom, you know you're near syzygy. And if you see it at the Golden Gate now. Uh, if it gets over eight and a half feet, you're in a very unusual period, and uh, again, uh, earthquake prone. Now, there there are three effects that occur. Not only is the tide coming in and out every six hours, every foot of water is a change of load of nearly one million tons per square mile. So you look at 500 square miles of the San Francisco Bay and Delta, and this water surges in and surges out in six hours. Yeah. And as a a normal tide, four, four and a half feet, doesn't affect the fault much. But when you hit the twice that, very rare times. Nine-foot tide. Yeah, that's when the, the fault lines really react. Now, not only is it the water going in and out, but it's the solid earth going up and down, too, earth tide which many people you know, weren't even aware of. I wasn't. That's, so in, I in, that's inland, fresh water, yeah. responding to the moon and sun the same way. The solid earth going up and down, yep. okay. like squeezing on, a, on an orange. Well, not just the water and the earth. The earth itself is what you're saying. Exactly. And okay. so you imagine all the magma chambers, what that does beneath the volcanoes. It uh, keeps it uh, alive, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It uh, can cause squeezing up through the cracks and uh, cause a new lava flow. Yep. 
So um, that's the other effect. And then there's the third effect is the poor pressure. Now, the only thing holding a fault together is friction. The same thing can be said of landslides. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fault lines are usually very steep, but not all of them. Some of them are quite shallow, yeah. uh, gently sloping. But anyway, uh, like the San Andreas is nearly vertical, and it moves sideways. But many faults move up and down, slide up and down like on a ramp. And uh, so if the conditions have been developing for dozens of years and the strains from plate tectonics uh, accumulating, yeah. the rock always has a limit of strength, especially along a fault line where the rock is crushed up and turns to clay gouge, they call it. Okay. And these form imper- impermeable layers in depth. And so you often have poor pressures building up rapidly, and water won't compress. It's incompressible. But if you try to compress water down deep, it, no matter what direction the stress is, the water will kick back equally and oppositely in all directions. And maybe it just takes a little bit of stress to cause that water pressure to reduce the frictional resistance to movement. And that's when you get the earthquake, when it, the fault suddenly moves. The blocks on either side of a fault suddenly move. Yeah. Does, by the way, does uh, rain or snow pack uh, make a difference? Oh, yes. Now, with something else that came to me rather late, that uh, the wettest year we ever had in San Jose was 1983, and I knew that the, the record that we broke was 1889. And on April 24th of 1890, we had a six and a half magnitude quake down by San Jose. So here we had the new record rainfall, and so I predicted to everyone, 1984, we're going to have a six magnitude quake, even though we hadn't had one since 1911. Yeah. Well, they said, can you do better than that? I said, it'll probably be in March, April, or October, which are the three big earthquake months. Okay, we're going to keep that for after break. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts, helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern on CRN. Jim Berklin, Maverick Geology, more when we come back. Welcome back to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber and Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist, Earthquake Predictor. Boy, I cut you off in the middle of a good story. <laughs> yes. Um, we were talking about, let's see, the, Pre- oh, the 1983 record rainfall. Yes. And uh, because of the previous record rainfall being followed by a six and a half magnitude quake in the San Jose area, and the weight of the water on the reservoirs and the groundwater table. Uh, we'll probably have another six-magnitude quake, even though we haven't had one since 1911 in the Bay Area. So I've made such a prediction to the Gilroy City Council, to the Campbell Chamber of Commerce, to THERS, the retirement group, um, and to Seek Technology, a, a, a Silicon Valley company. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, on, uh, then I thought, you know, after they said, well, can you pin it down better than sometime in 1984? I said probably March, April, or October, our biggest earthquake months. Now, why are those the biggest earthquake months? Well, that's one one question, and some people said, well, that's because it's rainy. March and April are rainy, but that doesn't explain October, which is usually dry. Right. But what does explain it 
is the equinox. We have the equinoxal, equinoctal tides. They're a little bit higher than normal. And it happens in March, the opening day of, you know, spring. And okay. in September, with the opening day of fall. So the equinoctal tides enter in, add those to the, to the other factors. So, right. um, and what can you pin down better than that? And I said, well, as we approach those, those months, uh, I will be watching closely what the missing pets do in the local paper. Okay. And that, was, that was a factor that was given to me in 1979 by a physicist with Xerox, and I've been extremely skeptical of such a thing until I found it worked. Yeah. So I've been using it ever since. So we got rain, tide, and pet behavior. Yes. And, of course, there are other things now I've added to it, but those are the three main things at that point. And uh, darned if my family... And I were not all over in Hawaii enjoying ourselves <laughs> during April of uh, 1984. Mm-hmm. And I was collecting, of course, all the newspapers were piling up. And when we came back from vacation, I started going through the old newspapers for about 10 days. And uh, I noticed a sudden increase in the missing dogs. They hit 42, and the normal was 15 missing dog assets, Ooh, you know, wow. in, in the paper. 42 so I, for I 15. circled that and put an exclamation point on it and had little time to do more because that's when we got the 6.2 quake, <laughs> the strongest since 1911 in the Bay Area. Yeah. And darned if it wasn't on April 24th, exactly the same date of the year that that 6.5 magnitude quake had occurred on back in 1890, following the first wettest year. Yes. So I think that was a coincidence. I mean, they can't predict it to the day like that, but they were both in April, and they both followed the full moon and uh, followed the two wettest years in record. Now, my critics say, coincidence, and I say, more corroborative evidence. (laughs) So just like um, they denied that uh, putting these chemical warfare waste down deep in wells in Colorado near Denver. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, Denver began to shake with quakes of up to five magnitude, and the older Denverites had never even felt a quake. And uh, David Evans, an engineering geologist, said, I think it's pumping all that water into those 12,000-foot wells out of town. And, of course, the USGS and the other scientists said, that's ridiculous, just pumping a little water in a hole. Come on, that's, that's down into the basement rock and never had any earthquakes down there. Well, it turns out all the epicenters or the focus of these different earthquakes was very close to where the 12,000-foot wells were. And they said, well, I don't think so, but they went to an abandoned oil field and began pumping water down there and began to generate earthquakes. So then they said, oh, we thought so all the time. It's perfectly logical. See, slowly they they turn around. Now, another engineer, uh, that Hoover Dam, noticed that Hoover Dam began to area began to shake with quakes of over five magnitude following the construction of Lake Mead and the dam. And he said he thought the extra loading of the water and the water pour pressure and the dam weight itself would help to trigger the quakes, which were mostly at the lower end of the reservoir where it was deepest. And they said, come on, earthquakes are random events. You can't you can't connect them to the to a reservoir. Yeah, they have nothing to do with geology or natural effects. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. And so he, he went to his deathbed not knowing he was absolutely right. And he pointed out that on the Mississippi River in 1927, there was a big flood that came right past Memphis as Memphis shook with a five-magnitude quake. 
And I noticed myself that in 1947 there was a flood coming down the Missouri River. Yeah. And where the Missouri hit St. Louis that summer on June 27th, I believe, St. Louis began to shake with a series of quakes. So we're talking weight of water. Weight of water and uh, pushing down on the on the crust. Right. And so um, when they have an extra high snowpack, the, one of the greatest snowpacks ever in the Sierras was 1952. And a, a train was trying to get over the summit, and it got stuck in the snow, uh, and the passengers were uh, stuck for about three days, the city of San Francisco. And they had to get the passengers out with snow cats. Yeah. When that snow melted and got down into the San Joaquin Valley, yeah. that was the year we had the 7.7 quake in Fort Tejon, ah. the strongest quake since 1906. Makes sense. Yep. And so it, it took a few months. Either the snowpack was in January, the maximum, and uh, the quake happened in July. Yeah. And the strongest aftershock of that 7.7 was a 6 magnitude that occurred one month later, the day after the eclipse of the sun. Wow. In fact, it was the eclipse of the moon. Yeah. Because the, uh, <laughs> the Fort Tejone quake was on the day of the new moon. Yeah. The very day of the new moon. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmaine Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our guest today, Jim Berklin, maverick geologist and earthquake predictor, and if you would like to check out his website further, he's at www.syzygyjob.com. Can you explain why uh, this is a historical thing in San Francisco? The worst homing pigeon race, only 10% of the birds returned. That's just amazing. In uh, March 24th, 1964, what caused that? Well, that's because of the change in the magnetic field that preceded the strongest quake we've ever measured in North America, which was the, the Good Friday earthquake in Alaska. Now that's 1,800 miles to the north, but that but that quake caused permanent water level changes in the island of Hawaii, caused the uh, waves in the uh, wells down in Georgia of about 10 or 15 feet fluctuations in the water wells there. Oh my! And so um, we know there can be very long range effects from very large earthquakes. In fact, one big earthquake can trigger another big one a thousand miles away. And this was another thing that was laughed at for many years until after the uh, the quake down in the, the Mojave Desert here in what, 1991. Yeah. And uh, that's when the Landers quake hit and then followed a few hours later by Big Bear, just about 30 miles away. Yeah. And then there were quakes up at uh, Mammoth Lakes. And around Mount Lassen, a volcano in Northern California, and then there was a five magnitude quake in Utah, and another five magnitude down by Yucca Mountain, where they want to have the nuclear depository, and they were told that there would never be a quake of oh, five magnitude. Warning. So, how much did the water change in Hawaii on that? Uh, I haven't seen the numbers. They said a permanent change in the water level, though, the groundwater table. And you might look into that. So what, wow, ha- that's what happened to these passenger pigeons in San Francisco, 1,800 miles away from the earthquake? What, what Not passenger pigeons, but the homing pigeons. passenger pigeons. I like that idea. But the homing pigeons, they released them, the normal pigeon race, and uh, they had to 
They didn't come back. Very few came back on time. A number of them came back after days or weeks, mm -hmm. and a lot of them just got adopted or killed or never made it back. Yeah, is they that it was the worst smash race, and it took the pigeon masters about a week to come up with these old records. He promised he was going to look for it for me. Yeah, and when he came up with it, I got a shudder down my spine when he said it was March the twenty fourth of nineteen sixty four. Again, coincidence, right? So, and, so that's the magnetic fields thrown yes, way off. Yes. So the passenger pigeons couldn't read passenger the pigeons. The pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> yep. that's, see, they have what the are one. they <laughs> fleas? Are they passenger pigeons or fleas or what? <laughs> so anyway, um, since I raised pigeons myself, I could really appreciate that, and I gave. I worked closely with the pigeon industry for some time, and I would tell them dates to be careful to. I have the races on, and I would they would report to me when they had the smash race, and I'd find a quake uh, that was immediately in the flight line. Yeah. About uh, ten years ago, there was a there were three races in Pennsylvania, uh, where the pigeons didn't get home and were spending their time in schoolyards and parks and, and trees instead of flying home, and that was just before the strongest quake in Pennsylvania history. Now I've seen. Um, I believe 15 quakes listed in the quake books for Pennsylvania. Yeah. The strongest one was this one, about 5.4 near uh, Sharon in the western boundary of uh, Pennsylvania. And uh, all of those Pennsylvania quakes listed were in one of my seismic windows. So Pennsylvania mm -hmm. really fits very well. So it makes sense. Yeah. Reaffirmation, it makes sense. Uh -huh. What about also up in Alaska, there was an island that moved 60 feet? No, well, Montague Island, uh, you know, it's 47 feet. Oh. And, and that's where it moved up and down along that thrust fault uh, from the uh, that same good uh, Friday earthquake. So so the fault moves so much that the island literally moves with it. Yeah. It uh, goes up and down, and uh, the, so the island moved up about 20, and, and on the other side it moved down about 20, and this caused the big tsunami. Well, now, sure. You don't, get a, you don't get a tsunami with sideways motion, and I always pointed out, if you have a platter in the in the bottom of a big dishpan full of water, yeah, you pick the platter up by the edge and you pull it up, nothing happens. But if you pull it straight up, the water just goes out in all directions from the tsunami in your dishpan. Right. So it takes movement up and down on the crust uh, beneath the sea. Right. Okay. So the San Andreas won't give us a tsunami. Yep. You're listening to Mastering Ourselves with Keith and Charmy Amber, your spiritual lifestyle experts with sound answers to life's tough questions, Monday through Saturday, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on CRN. Our, uh, our guest today is Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist and Earthquake Predictor. Once again, if you'd like to check him out further, he's at www.sygygyjob.com. So I don't know what the date is, but I heard that there was um, a lot of animal activity in China. Fish yes. and frogs were trying to break through the ice, and they killed themselves trying to break through the ice because they were agitated, and other animals. And uh, the Chinese took the warning and evacuated a city. Do you know what right. that situation? Absolutely. That was February 3rd, our time, February 4th, their time, in 1975, with the city of Haicheng. And they had uh, lots of warnings, the tilt of the ground, the change in the chemistry of ground of the well water, and the zoo animals acting up. And uh, you're right, they didn't. It was uh, the February frost, 
and the snakes that had been hibernating crawled out of their holes Ooh. and froze to death. There was one snake that uh, was half in and half out, and the uh, half out was frozen, and the tail was still twitching down in the hole. Mm-hmm. So um, they did uh, evacuate the city of Haicheng and uh, saved tens of thousands of lives because the city was destroyed by 7.3. Now, they had only expected a 5.5 to 6, and by earthquake prediction standards, that meant they were wrong. you got to be fairly close. Right. It should be in your range. But they did the important thing and alerted the public and, and got an evacuation. Now, it's not practical in this country to really evacuate a city. It might you know, cause more problems than by uh, leaving people alone with, just yeah. with education as yeah. to what to do in their own individual areas. You, you uh, make a point, don't be scared, but be prepared. That's the real thing, education. Know that you don't just automatically shut off your gas because often... It takes weeks before the gas country can come out and open everybody's gas line. And if you try to open it by yourself and the pilot lights out, boom, you cause the explosion and lose your house. And so there's pe- no need to unless you smell gas. So if people are inside their house and earthquake hits, what should they do? Well, you mostly stay put unless you're under a big chandelier or a big statue or something like that. Uh, the idea about getting in the doorway isn't so good anymore because the, the impulse may come from a different direction and move you sideways, you know. You can only brace yourself. You should get down uh, under a table and hold on. Not, not a glass table. No, no, that's not a good idea. <laughs> but uh, don't go rushing out to uh, have a tile roof come down on you or a brick chimney or uh, have power lines, uh, you know, sparking and uh, electrocuting you. Yep, yep. So mostly earthquakes, the people are going to survive. It's only if they do the weird things like the animals do, run, get out of here, let me out of here, which right. is what the animals do days ahead of time. Panic. Yeah. So um, by by education, now I had that, that 6.2 quake. I was in the county building, and we were shaking back and forth about five feet, and a pendulum was swaying. I stopped it from crashing into the window as it began to swing larger and larger. It was a big cast iron pendulum I was using to detect distant quakes, and uh, by just sort of giving a blow-by-blow description of the quake, that oh, this is about a 6.2 is what I guess, and that was right on, and the gal that's sitting next to me wasn't used to quakes, and she said, I'm sure glad you were talking me out of that, because I was panicking, and uh, you didn't seem to be that disturbed. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah. So, so if you get, like, in a closet where nothing's going to fall down off the shelf, you know, you got a lot of walls around you, that might be safer or in a bathroom. Yeah, usually a bathroom, bathroom. is good because, like, yeah. uh, in a tornado. Right. Um, but uh, often you, the quakes usually only last, you know, a big quake might last 30 seconds. The biggest quake, like in Alaska, lasted three and a half minutes where you could not stand. Oh, boy. So you can crawl, you know, get under the table or whatever. But... Um, there are okay break time you're listening to mastering ourselves with keith and charmy amber your spiritual lifestyle experts helping humanity wake up one show at a time thanks for joining us tonight we have a little bit more with jim berkland maverick geologist earthquake predictor right after the break stay with us Welcome back. Thanks for being with us, Mastering Ourselves with Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist. 
So they say the longest recorded earthquake happened in Lisbon, Portugal, mm -hmm. and, and they said the magnets lost their magnetic force. How did that happen? Scientists can't explain it. And since they say they can't explain it, they say it didn't happen. But, <laughs> but, but it also happened in Tokyo before a major quake uh, oh. in 1835. Wow. And uh, so it does happen. And uh, we know that the magnetic field gets highly variable as the quake is building up. Yeah. Now, uh, I wanted to mention that people drag out the Bible and uh, look at the book of Matthew. And when uh, Christ is on the cross, the sky darkens about 3 in the afternoon. Right. And you have a total eclipse of the sun. Yeah. And uh, then the big earthquake hits, and the Roman soldier says, Truly he must be the Son of God. Mm-hmm. And three days later, the stone is rolled away by an earthquake. Ah, that makes so sense. So that's an aftershock. Yeah. And the, the sequence is in the right order. Yes. Eclipse, quake, aftershock. There's a lot of natural uh, explanations for many of the miracles or biblical things. Mm-hmm. Uh, has anyone done this, like with volcanoes, like like predicted Mount St. Helens or something? I did. Oh, you did? I was being interviewed by... A TV station back from Boston up on the hill waving at the Calaveras Fault and saying how do it was two for a five back in 1980. Yeah. And the director said, well, what do you think, speaking of other things, Jim, what do you think about Mount St. Helens? This was on March 27, 1980. I said, I think that volcano means business. I give it a 50-50 chance to erupt this year and become the first one of the 48 states that's not last in the 1914-17. to 17. He said, I hope, I hope you're right, Jim, because we're going to go fly around us this afternoon. Oh. He dropped me off at the county building, and he said, Jim, did you hear that Mount St. Helens is erupting? First day. Wow. What gave you the idea that it was meant business? Because they had a 4.3 quake, the strongest on the West Coast, and it won the office earthquake pool from a secretary who picked, picked the time of the biggest quake on the West Coast. You did? And, yeah, no. I didn't get it. She, I, I set up the earthquake pool, and she okay. won it. Okay, yep, yep. And it also there were a couple of 3.5s right under the peak uh, following that 4.3 or 4. So that means something's about to happen. When it happens right under the cone, you know, the magma chamber's building up and uh, yep. squeezing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, not, you know, 5 or 10 miles away, but right under the cone. Right. You know, uh, we just uh, we just are very thankful for your service here. You know, you don't get money off of this. You don't sell books or something, but... Uh, you know, people can uh, get part of your newsletter and even do a donation, but uh, they can at least pay for the newsletter. How do they go about doing this? Well, they can go to my website and they see a application form, or just send me. Uh, right now, I had to raise it because of the cost of mail going up and everything. Sure. Printing, I raised it from forty dollars to fifty dollars a year for twelve monthly issues with the eight pages and all kinds of news, not just about earthquakes, but uh, there's there's jokes in there and there's a little history and a uh, little bit of everything, a little philosophy. And um, and every year in January, I mail out the list of the most likely earthquake periods for the year. Right. That goes to all the subscribers. So that can be found at S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y-J-O-B.com. Right. And the Earthquake Newsletter also, The Man Who Predicts Earthquakes by Cal Ori is about Jim Berkland, Maverick Geologist. And if people would like a signed copy of that, what can they do? Just uh, Jim Berkland, P.O. Box, 1926. That was four years before I was born, 1926. Yeah. Little town of Glen Ellen, where Jack London lived. He commuted between here and Hawaii for a number of years. <laughs> and uh, that's in Glen Ellen. 
in California, and the zip code is 95442. Just send me $20, and I will send them a signed copy postpaid with my signature and my geology stamp. I'm the only registered geologist in California who's predicting quakes. We're out of time, Jim. We'll have you back. Thank you for being with us. You're very welcome. You Be well. Care. Right. Bye-bye. 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 Wow. He's good. Well, that was enjoyable. You know, he's so connected to what's going on with Earth. You know, you really ought to listen. Now, come on. You can do it. Stretch into. The greater you. Thank you for joining us tonight. We'll see you on Monday. Have a good weekend. God bless you.